So when you look at glycolysis, there's not only the chemical reactions that go on, but the other thing you have to worry about is thermodynamics. So free energy is moving, and why do they move in the way they do? So what I've given you here are the values for glycolysis for all the standard free energies for each of these reactions as it goes all the way through glycolysis. Some of them you can see actually are pretty favorable. Um, and others are not very favorable, particularly the aldolase reaction doesn't appear to be very favorable. But as we've talked about, standard free energy is one thing. It gives you an idea of whether you can calculate whether it has the potential to happen. It doesn't tell you whether that's what's going to happen. But additionally, there's the added factor that you can change this value based on what the true free energy is, which is being able to manipulate the concentrations of substrates and products. It would be the complete reaction. Yeah, so this would be, and actually we'll try to emphasize that here, it's really that if you have the reaction of A going to B plus 15 kilojoules, so this reaction is actually energetically favorable because when you do the calculations of free energy, you're going to actually have the delta free energy being negative. And you guys already know this, but I just want to reiterate is that if it's greater than zero, you're going to need energy to drive the reaction. If you're going to be below zero, um, you're going to actually have the reaction go forward pretty efficiently. Or the other thing is it can be an equilibrium. Moving backwards and forwards equally, and there's no energy or problem with moving back and forth between those reactions. And this one in particular, this triosinosylase sonorase reaction that converts these two between each other, that actually occurs very readily. Backwards and forwards, it's an equilibrium. But that's not the only reaction that is going to be an equilibrium. Just to reiterate the fact that you have the vary the concentrations of substitution products, you can influence the reaction. Right? And this is key to central metabolism and how it actually works and how it works efficiently. Because the response that's going to occur, environmental changes, is going to be first these types of things, where metabolite changes are the first before you have the ability to do any type of transcriptional and so the value of free energy, again, is just the fact that you have this equation, which is telling you this concentration of substrates and products are important. It's standard free energy. In essence, these disappear because everything's exactly at the same concentration, because that's how you calculate standard free energy. And so you can set this, in essence, to delta G naught, which is the standard free energy at equilibrium. You're just having the standard free energy equilibrium. And the, really, the point of all this is, is what I've already been mentioning, is that the standard free energy provides a reasonable, reasonable estimate, whether it can occur or not, and that can be influenced by the concentrations of substrates and products in the cell. And just to give you an idea of how that works for glycolysis, right? what I've shown you on one side is the standard free energy of this process, which shown on the other side is actually the true free energy that's been calculated inside the cell. And some of these are not too different from each other. So the standard free energy here of glucose going to glucose 6-phosphate, <coughs> um, they're very close to each other. But if you look at a problem like that, the aldolase that we talked about, the standard free energy, it's actually a very unfavorable reaction. Inside the cell, it becomes a favorable reaction. Okay? It's solely based on keeping concentrations of substrates and products appropriate to influence the free energy. 
right? So this just gives you an idea of what the cell is doing, is keeping all these at a certain concentration, and it wants to do this because glycolysis, as you probably already know, has to work in one direction to do glycolysis. It needs to work in the other direction when it does gluconeogenesis. So it wouldn't necessarily make sense for the cell to have to worry about every single reaction in that pathway. And so what it does is I'm going to show you these values in a slightly different way. And I've plotted them here. And what I've done is taken, if it says a negative 17, I've just added 17 to it, added 2.4, added 0.6, added 1.1, just to give me a starting value. Okay, and that's what this value is up here, if we look at the true free energy. So the first reaction, you plop off, it's minus 27.1 kilojoules per mole difference, so it drops down. Notice this next reaction for these components is sitting in essence near equilibrium. Right? You're not too far off, your free energy is minus 1.4, it's pretty close to zero. So in essence, this is sitting um, at equilibrium. Then there's another drop off. <clears throat> That's a significant change. The rest of these reactions all sit really close to equilibrium. Okay. Now, the benefit of that is there are really only three spots where there's a significant difference in the, the true free energy of the reaction. Okay. So, what that means is, for one, these reactions here can move backwards and forwards very easily. The only thing that has to happen is the cell needs to just adjust the concentration of one of them just a little bit and it'll start going the other direction. And you can adjust the other side a little bit and have that increase and it'll go back the other direction. Very rapidly back and forth. So there are only three places where there's a significant barrier. So if you're to go through and look at the difference between glycolysis and gluconeogenesis, there are three spots where it can be different. Okay? And you have to go around and come up with another enzyme at those three and it makes sense. You can control the pathway in three nodes rather than have to control it at every single step in the synthesis. So what the cell does then is those steps are pretty tightly regulated. And just to give you an idea about the types of things and how the cell can adjust, is that this is looking at glycolysis, and I'm just going to give you there's three things that can help regulate the flow of metabolites in glycolysis. It's actually much more complicated than this, but I'm just going to show you three to get across the point. So if you look through this pathway, the three steps are this first one, glucose going to glucose 6-phosphate, this other one, fructose 6-phosphate, to fructose 1, 3, this phosphate, and PEP going to pyruvate. Those are the ones where it has a really significant difference in free energy. The rest of these, in essence, are sitting pretty close to equilibrium. And so, if the cell, let's look down at this one here, if the cell has a really high concentration of fructose 6-phosphate, right? So you've got a lot of this molecule here. That presence then stimulates this reaction to occur. So why do you think it's going to do that? It's not affecting the reaction up here, it's affecting this one down here. So in essence what's happening is fructose 6-phosphate binds to that enzyme, alters how it does its catalysis, and makes it more active. So what would be the benefit? 
What do, you, what do you think an excess of fructose 6-phosphate would be an indication of the cell? Right, so, you're, so in essence, what's happening is there's so much flux through here, you're starting to accumulate fructose 6-phosphate, and it's in essence reached a bottleneck. Right? And one way to get rid of that problem is get rid of everything over here as quickly as possible so you can push that forward faster. Right? And so by enhancing this enzyme, by default, all of these metabolites then start to flow much faster in this particular direction coming down this way. So you have the ability to do, in essence, what's called precursor activation. Right? This enzyme is not using fructose 6-phosphate, but fructose 6-phosphate is a precursor to phosphoenolpyruvate. And so what it's doing is pushing flux in this direction to convert as much heat to pyruvate so that the cell can adjust its metabolism appropriately. And the reason it can do that pretty efficiently is all you need to do is get that one regulatory spot where the rest of this is sitting in equilibrium. All you need to do is adjust the concentration just a little bit and everything will flow one particular direction. So you start pulling away PET and there's a lower concentration of this which sets off this equilibrium now that it's pushing this direction rather than being going backwards and forwards efficiently. Does that make sense? So the other thing that comes into play is you have excess concentrations of ADP. So what do you think that would tell itself? Exactly. Just saying, in essence, the cells starve for energy. So, what would be the benefit of pushing through glycolysis faster? You're going to get more ATP now if you start pushing things through? Right, you're going to start generating more ATP. But if the whole thing is eventually giving you also NADH, what can that be used for? Electron transport chain. So in essence, you're pushing this through, generating ATP, generating reducing power. Reducing power then, you go off to your electron transport chain, donate the electrons into that, generate a proton motor force, and you generate more ATP. So the excess concentration of ADP then influences this pathway. And what it's doing is binding to this particular enzyme, altering the activity of that enzyme, and making it work faster in this direction and pushing it this way. So you start to accumulate a higher concentration of fructose 1,6-phosphate, then you have this rapid equilibrium. Now you've adjusted it because now you put a high concentration of the beginning component in the pathway, which is going to push the equilibrium towards phosphoenolpyruvate. So the other thing you get is you have excess concentrations of phosphoenolpyruvate. So what do you think that's telling itself? This is telling you to slow down. There's too much of this, which is causing this to bottleneck up, and you're starting to accumulate these components. And what happens is glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate are some of those 12 essential precursors that can then be diverted to other things. And so in essence, what you're doing is slowing the flux down because there's too much PEP, allowing this to accumulate 
that it now gets pushed into those other pathways and eventually starts to decrease the concentration of those metabolites. So the cell is doing this on a constant basis of adjusting things. And you've seen this concept already in respiration and in phototrophy is that if you have too much of a product accumulating, that's going to change the direction things are going to go and how much energy is required, and the cell adjusts appropriately. So all of the metabolism is based on this. And when we discuss um, the ability of the cells to <coughs> remove various components and pathways, so there are six essential precursors of those 12 that come out of this pathway. As they get siphoned away to build those other components, that's going to affect the flux through this pathway. The other thing it's going to do is you'll see that all these pathways are interconnected in various ways. And the flux through one can impact the flux through another. And so what the cell is going to do is as those metabolites get pulled away, flux changes and you push the metabolites in particular directions to make sure you're always getting those 12 essential precursors. Do you have questions about that? So we, again, you've got glycolysis going on. That's what we're talking about at this point. There's lots of, um, so that, that's down to pyruvate. Pyruvate gets siphoned off to do a lot of things. All these other components can be siphoned off as well. But if you want to go in the opposite direction, then the flux has to occur. But then the fact that you've run into three blocks in the metabolic pathway that are energetically unfavorable, the cell then uses enzymes that are altered in a way so that they can go in the reverse direction more favorably. So in essence, pyruvate can be converted back to phospholemopyruvate using a PEP synthase. Pyruvate can also be converted back to oxaloacetate, which can be a source of phospholemopyruvate. So you need to get around this thermodynamically unfavorable step. It doesn't work efficiently in reverse inside the cell. So the true free energy doesn't allow this enzyme to just work in reverse. You've got to use a different enzyme. You also have, uh, this is the, one of the other thermodynamically um, challenging steps. That's another one that gluconeogenesis works in reverse. And the same thing here, glucose 6-phosphate back to glucose, you can have a phosphatase to remove that phosphate to get around that step. And that way you need is three enzymes to be able to work in reverse efficiently rather than having coming up with a completely different enzyme for all these steps to allow them to flow backwards. Okay. So keep everything in equilibrium. Have a couple of checkpoints. <coughs> And so I put on here that this enzyme that takes fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and converts it back to fructose 6-phosphate is negatively affected by the presence of ATP. You have a vast concentration of ATP accumulating. The cell does not want this to flow backwards. You need to generate more energy. You want it to flow forwards and try to push that. So if gluconeogenesis is going this direction, but then this enzyme gets inhibited, you start to accumulate these components and they flow back the other direction so that the cell can now generate more energy. So the immediate response of these organisms is to adjust the flux through all these various pathways to make sure they work pretty efficiently. Everybody have any questions? All right. So glycolysis, you learn over and over again, it is quite an important pathway. But what you'll find also is nature has also evolved different ways to do it. And so I'll just give you an example in archaea. So in archaea, in some archaea at least, glycolysis works in a similar way. 
one of the differences, they, as we talked about earlier, they use ADP sometimes instead of ADP. It gets all the way over to here. They, they go through the split. They make dihydroxyacetone phosphate, glyceraldehyde break phosphate, but they don't contain this enzyme or this enzyme. So they look for the genomes. There's nothing there that actually does that catalysis. And so you would initially think it doesn't have the ability to do glycolysis. But instead, it has a completely different enzyme that circumvents that particular step. So what's one of the problems that Archaea are then going to face if they get rid of that enzyme, or get rid of these two enzymes? It's true, but what is what is one three bisphosphoglycerate get you? ATP. Energy. ATP. You're thinking about it the right way, but this that molecule is really important. But the reason it becomes important is because it can generate ATP. So now the problem is, if this is how the organism is going to make its living, it's burned two ATPs up here, the equivalent of two ATPs up here. It's circumvented the spot that gets back two ATPs, and now you gain just two ATPs here. In essence, you're sitting now with the net gain of, in essence, no ATP. So that's a significant problem for these organisms. So let's look at what this particular enzyme does. And this is just showing you what it actually is involved in. What happens is that enzyme has, as its name implies, it's a ferrodoxin oxidoreductase. So what it does is it actually generates reduced ferrodoxin. That reduced ferrodoxin then is an electron source. So what it does is it dumps the electrons into an enzyme called a membrane-bound hydrogenase. Those electrons then are the electron donor in a little respiratory system where the electrons are donated by the reduced ferrodoxin. They move through this system and the acceptor is protons. So the protons accept the electrons, generating H2 gas. At the same time, this also pumps a proton into the cell. Importantly, this H2 gas is not being removed from the cell. Right? So it's not going to be an impact on the electrochemical gradient, but the fact that it pumps a proton out is important. Right? So now what it's done is it's gotten rid of a step that's normally involved in substrate-level phosphorylation and replaced it. I guess it's probably one of the more minimalistic electron transport chains you'll ever see. One enzyme sets the electrons on one side, donuts on the other, pumps a proton out of the cell. Generates a proton motor force, proton motor force can generate ATP. So it's a pretty cool little respiratory chain for how this works. Now, the reason why this was such a big question is that there are some things that didn't make sense when people studied this organism. Right? And this is there's a lot of information on here, but it simplifies into some basic things we really talked about. So they know that glucose comes down, makes uh, two molecules of glyceraldehyde three phosphate, you get to pyruvate, pyruvate goes to acetyl-CoA, then acetyl-CoA to acetate. If we walk our, ourselves, if we just went over the fact that this generates paradoxin and pumps proton out of the cell, you get to pyruvate, pyruvate to acetyl-CoA and carbon dioxide. Right? You've seen that over and over again. You know that that's a redox reaction. 
you're generating acetyl-CoA. We know that you can get acetyl-CoA, if you're going all the way acetyl-CoA to acetate, you can couple that to generating ATP, right? So you're going to go from acetyl-CoA to acetyl-phosphate to acetate, which is then going to be able to generate ATP in that process. So what happens is you can add up the amount of ATP that's gained out of this process. And in the end, you get a net gain of two ATPs by substrate level phosphorylation. You use two ATPs here. You generated two ATPs here. So that was the net gain of zero so far. But the fact that you went to seal the to acetate allowed you to get two more ATPs out. So net gain of two ATPs. So they knew that that couldn't be the whole explanation for how it works. Right? And the reason for that is a really kind of a stunning number. And that is this here is that there are 10 to 10.5 grams of cell mass per mole of ATP generated in the process. So that value is true regardless of what organism you're studying. So what you can do is grow a cell up, and this is eukaryotic, prokaryotic, archaea, doesn't matter. It's always true. The amount of cell mass you can get is 10 to 10.5 grams. If you go through, that you know how much ATP has to be generated in that process. If that number doesn't match, there's a problem. And so if we look through this, we can assume there are three protons per ATP, because that's the ATP synthase. Let's assume there are nine C cell units in the ATP synthase as well. For one mole of glucose going to two moles of acetate, you're going to get four protons pumped out, or four moles of protons pumped out of the cell. So that leads to 1.2 moles of ATP by the respiratory chain. Now you've gained 2 ATP by substrate level phosphorylation. So in essence, you've made 3.2 moles of ATP per glucose. Or molecules, just make, this is worded correctly to make sure you're dealing with moles, but you should know by now you can get that to molecules. Alright? So if you assume there are 3.2 moles of ATP per mole of glucose, then this pyrophosphorosis has a growth yield of 11.1 grams per mole of ATP. That's pretty close to the 10 to the 10.5. Right. The problem that they ran into previously is they had, in essence, we're going through this and saying there's only two molecules of ATP, or two moles of ATP per mole of glucose through that. Well, that is not going to give you value anywhere close to that 10 to 10.5. Right. So that pathway had to be wrong. And so they went through and characterized it. And this comes out to be pretty close. So this is exactly, probably, I mean, this is a pretty good description of probably exactly how this organism generates all of its ATP. We're taking glucose and going to acetate. Right? Substrate level phosphorylation, little respiratory chain. You know now how to convert the amount of protons out if you can calculate that, how many come in through an ATP synthase. Now you know about its physiology. And you can probably say this is probably how the organism makes all its energy. So they did this little twist on glycolysis, and it came at a cost because they lost an ATP. But they made up for it by doing this respiratory chain. Anybody have any questions about that? But obviously, this integrates together really nicely everything we've talked about so far and how these systems work. Right. So we talk about glycolysis in bacteria. Um, one of the other major pathways is the endoduron pathway. You go from glucose to 
pyruvate and glyceraldehyde 3 phosphate. And then another one. So in the end, you still generate two molecules of pyruvate. So what's the first thing you can say about you had to, you were just given in essence glucose and pyruvate glyceraldehyde 3 phosphate? In that conversion, what assumption can you make must have happened in that process? Would be one of the first things you could do. <coughs> so, what if you were to calculate oxidation values? All right. You don't even know anything about the pathway. All you need to know is glucose goes to the roommate closer out of the pathway. Does it have to deal with the reoxidation? Just like we did with the previous system, 
what you need to do is introduce some type of keto group at this position, and you've got to remove that oxygen off of here. So it actually works by a dehydration but what it does is it introduces that carbonyl at that position. You notice where it's located. You got to break this carbon-carbon bond. You have the ability to pull this proton off, drop the electrons. These can move to here, and they can move because you have that carbonyl functionality. It's carbon-carbon bond breakage. You just have to set up that fossil group, keto group, in the right location. And now you can do efficient carbon-carbon It's the same thing we already saw in glycolysis. Yes, you pyruvate, glyceraldehyde, and phosphate. That goes through here. So, does this generate as much energy as you see with glycolysis in the context of ATP? What's the net gain of ATP in glycolysis? Two molecules of ATP. What's the net gain here? So why is that? Right. So what you said is you're only generating one molecule of glyceraldehyde, three phosphate. And so because this carbon-carbon bond breakage occurred in a slightly different way, this molecule is not phosphorylated, so therefore there's no way to convert that to a hydrogen molecule that generates ATP. So the antiderol pathway then generates one molecule of ATP, one molecule of ADH, and then also the important thing also generates a molecule of NADPH. So, so that NADPH, remember, is commonly used to build things in the cell rather than degrade them. So this would then go off and be involved in those types of processes. The NADH then can go off and potentially be involved in respiration. Yeah, it can. So this will go, we'll go through how pyruvate then gets taken by the cell for other processes. But you still lose one molecule of NADH. So if you compare glycolysis and um, the endoderon pathway, they're similar, but they don't actually give you the same energy use. The other thing is, is that there are only five of those essential precursors. And they've lost them. So if you're an organism that uses the endoderon pathway rather than glycolysis, how are you going to get back to fructose which is all that's missing here? So the cell cannot do glycolysis. It does not mean it does not do glucogenesis. Right? So this organism then is going to get to fructose 6-phosphate because it actually can do gluconeogenesis and it can't do glycolysis. You've got to get to those 12 essential precursors. If you can't get a pathway to get to those 12 essential precursors, you can't build everything in cells. You're dead. All right? So that's why you see these pathways over and over and over again because you've got to get to those 12. You can't get to them. There's no way to build basic things in the cell. So these guys will do gluconeogenesis. Now, what's important about this is that you have an organism such as E. coli 
E. coli has the ability um, to use either glycolysis or the endoterophilic way to be able to generate degrade glucose. And so that gives that organism a lot of flexibility. But if you're looking at Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a common pathogen, that organism only has the endoterophilic pathway. It doesn't have glycolysis. So the importance of that is that we don't have the endoterophilic pathway. So if you want to go through a target pathways for drug development, again, you try to find things that are found in your pathogen, not found in the host. So you don't want to be killing the host at the same time as killing the right? And understanding that difference is quite important. And so, in the end, you've got glucose in the end, you don't have to go into or aldehyde phosphate. Walk yourself through those pathways. It's relatively straightforward, but the patterns are very similar to what we already saw in glycolysis. It's found commonly in anaerobic gram-negative bacteria. It's not so common in anaerobes. Um, and it's pretty much limited mainly to prokaryotes, so archaea and um, bacteria. And so I'll stop there today. I wouldn't want to do this here.